I know. We're having a ball. It's a lot of fun. We're learning all about a history of Buffalo theater. Here we are on our LTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano, for part two of the Buffalo Theater history. We survived the first week, and already I'm getting a lot of comments and, and really nice feedback from people telling me how much they're enjoying this and how much they're learning, and pretty soon they'll be telling me how much I've screwed up, which is exactly what I predicted all along. Let's get right into it. It's a History of Buffalo Theater, episode two. There's the music. So we begin again with number two in a series of eight in a huge episode that starts in 1908 with Steve Cishan and Ron Emke. And today I introduce an upcoming feature which will be in all of the future podcasts and those are inserts from Mr. Tony Chase, who of course has great insight into the Buffalo Theater history. And without further ado, I'm going to take you right there to session number two of Sishan, Emke, and Pomisano on RLTP's Off-Road. In 1908, Duville opens its auditorium. It's now the Cavanoke Theater, but Duville College opened its auditorium in that grand old first building of 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 Duville College. It closes, you know, 60, 64 years later, and then reopens as the Cavanoke. I think just an interesting tidbit of information that it was called the auditorium, and it was probably done strictly for uh, presentations at the school and. Uh, who knows, graduation ceremonies, maybe even a lecture hall. I, I don't quite know. You know, the fact that so many of these spaces we have in at least some form today, they may be radically transformed, is one of the other special things about Buffalo, that uh, we managed to not demolish our history. In some cases. In so exactly. There right. are some many cases, cases where, yes. where preservation didn't happen. But uh, there's a reason why we're, you know, we're, we're on the map in terms of the nationwide uh, preservation Historic. movement because, and in many cases, it was preservation through neglect because no one wanted to, you know, spend the money to demolish these things. But, but we do have at least some version of these things and so many other communities don't because they were, you know, so intent on wiping out the past and, you know, creating the the newest of the new so that's another sort of feather in our cap i would say it makes me wonder and i'm going to speak to david lamb next week it makes me wonder this auditorium being closed in 72 what the plans were for it before he came along and sort of convinced them to refurbish the place would it would it have been torn down uh, you know might it have been made into classrooms i don't know i don't i don't think yeah. david will have an answer either but uh, fortunately, he, he did come along. And in the 70s, into the 80s, uh, into the 90s were just a, uh, you know, a very, very dark time. And the 50s and 60s, people still thought, ah, we can, uh, we'll figure this out. We're, Buffalo will be okay. Hey, we're, we've got a lot of money. We, we're not mm. worried about the St. Lawrence Seaway. Hey, we, you know, uh, mm. who cares that steel plants are closing? We'll figure it out. And as the, mm. the, the 50s and 60s became the 70s and 80s, and, um, you know, the heyday of the wrecking ball. Yeah. And, and, you know, not just the, the wrecking ball, but the, you know, the massive hemorrhaging of jobs, you know, there were, you know, sure. 22,000 men working at Bethlehem steel. And a decade later it was cold. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just, it's an amazing to think about. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, like you said, the, 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 the people tend to think about in a discussion like this, the things that are gone, but it is amazing to think about the things that are still here in New York city. Many of these places that we'd be talking about, you know, the Shays theater would have been torn down to build, uh, you know, some larger, more beautiful building. And we never lament those, those losses because, well, there's progress and things have moved on. Right. But in, in Buffalo's case, a lot of the things that are gone, it's, it's, uh, you know, more tragic because they've been replaced with a parking lot. Yes. <laughs> That's right. But we wonder about that, that place. And there's so many of these, you know, Shays Buffalo is a great example of, you know, community coming together and, and trying to preserve, you know, when we look at that block and we, we look at those few blocks of main street and then all of the great history and all the great buildings that have been torn down, but that Shays is still there and sort of the anchor of what is now 
theater in Buffalo, just as a, as a building to have that to look at and to, to take 20 or 30 years to, to rebuild it and to finally get the, the marquee back up and the great <laughs> Buffalo sign and what things that have now become iconic of Buffalo again, right? The, the, yeah. the beautiful Buffalo sign at, at Shays Buffalo. It really is great whether you're a, a fan or a, someone who partakes of theater or not to see how it's always been kind of nestled right in the middle of everything that we talk about and everything that, that, that we do. Mm-hmm. It's just great. And it still takes your breath away when you walk inside. <laughs> it's, it's, it still it makes you. It yeah. still makes you look around and say, "How did they ever do this?" It's it's yeah. It's just breathtaking. And it's authentic. Oh yeah. You know, and that's the, you know you can rebuild it if you have a, enough money. You can rebuild something like like Shays, but it, the, the the authenticity of it. To know that mm-hmm. you know this is a nineteen you know twenty six whenever uh, Shays was built. This is the uh, this is the real deal. This is authenticity. <laughs> this is a, this you can't replicate this. No matter how much money you have, you can spend a billion dollars building a, a movie palace that's close to Shays, but but you can't build what what we have here, which is uh, makes it very special, very very special. Yes. Another insert here in nineteen oh eight, the three Schubert brothers from Syracuse, we believe. They take over booking of the Tech Theater, and Al Jolson appears on opening night. He steals the show, even though he was an unknown, and suddenly becomes a star. They leased the Tech, and they started bringing in road shows. This was really the moment when the top-tier national and international talent started coming into Buffalo. And a lot of these names are not household names anymore, but they certainly would have been within the theater-going audiences of the late 19th and early 20th century. The Sir Henry Irving, the story behind Irving is that he either inspired Bram Stoker's Dracula or first kind of embodied the character on stage. Lillian Russell who was the most popular singer of operettas at the turn of the century. And um, Al Jolson performed, I believe, at the opening night of the Tech. Yes, the Schubert's first booking in 1908 was Al Jolson, who was just a nobody until the night that he was part of this minstrel act. Uh, He sang a song, he stole the show, and a star was born right here in Buffalo. Oh, Ironically, Al Jolson, of course, is the guy who stars in the first talkie, which leads to the downfall of these live theaters. 1914, Shays Hippodrome. Oh, this is the one I was referring to. 1914, Shays Hippodrome opens on Main near Chippewa, regarded as the finest picture house between New York City and Chicago. <laughs> there it is. There's yeah. the quote I was looking for. So we've got 1919, and Catherine Cornell goes with the Bonstell Company to London to play Joe March in Marion DeForest's stage adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's novel, Little Women, and Cornell is declared a star. This was her star-making vehicle. And I don't remember if this was in your timeline or, or mine, Ron, but somewhere, as we get further into these, I found some things like that are coming up that I know were my inclusions, not yours. Mm-hmm. I don't remember about this one, but I found it interesting because she travels to London with a Bonstell group from Buffalo, right? as has happened with other... Jimi Hendrix had to go to England to become a star, and uh, it, it happened here with Catherine Cornell. She went to London to be declared a star because of this particular uh, play, Little Women. So, and, and when we say star, we don't just mean like she's a marquee name. She was called the first lady of American theater before yes. Helen Hayes. Yes. So that's how big she became. But in the research that I did, no matter how big she got, she kept coming, bringing every one of her plays to Buffalo, Mm -hmm. which was probably smart on her part because some of them that bombed on Broadway did great here because of the, you know, hometown star. Of her notoriety. Yeah, it does good. Plus, as we said before, Buffalo was not a little hick town at this point. Now it's growing and growing and the canals and, and so on. It's become the hottest spot between New York City and Chicago. Right, right. It wasn't like she was going to Batavia. Right. She, she was going to Buffalo. And Right, right. 1922, Buffalo Players, a community group, is publicly launched at a meeting at the Iroquois Hotel 
November 23rd, Marion DeForest was the president of the organization, and she comes up later on, I believe. Well, she, she just came up as the woman who adapted Little Women. Yes, but I, I think she might come up later on, maybe not even in our our mm. section. But yeah, president of the organization. And, and that's interesting because in podcasts much further down the road, we're going to talk about the importance of community theater to Buffalo. And development of this community theater group in 1922, I think, is kind of significant. Moving on to 1923, the Buffalo Players leased the Allendale Theater, which is also interesting. Starting in 1923, the first production presented was A Curious Mishap by Carlo Goldoni, opening January 24th. Okay, now here, 1924, a wave of live theater closings as the public turns to films. And these are still silent films, by the way. Yeah, but I think that's certainly... Of course, this is the wave of the future, people going to the films, and, and then now we're sitting home watching them and so on, so the theaters are, are suffering. And when it says a wave of live theater closing, I'm assuming that that means other kinds of entertainment as well, because nothing, as we, we talked about the Cyclorama building, nothing mm -hmm. could be as impressive as watching film. People running away because they see a train coming at them and feeling like that's how realistic it was. So that was certainly the thrill of a lifetime in, in those days. Well, there's that novelty technological factor, but I'm also thinking now of the economic factor. Having been in the distant past a presenter, I know that it is very expensive to bring a large cast hmm. or even to use local people. You've got to you know, get sets and props and all of that. But particularly bringing people in from out of town is very expensive compared to you have this film, it's already shot. You don't have to do anything but promote it. And, you know, you've got people coming in. So even though we're still at the height of the roaring 20s at this point, mm -hmm. so, so, you know, the stock market is going to crash soon. So that's going to wreak havoc. Yeah. Also as a backdrop, though, when we talk about the, the larger, you know, you know, what's going on in the world, the way that people are entertaining themselves, period, has changed uh, dramatically. There's no longer the social lubrication that had been going on uh, oh, you know, right. since the beginning of time. We're in the middle of prohibition. Oh, Just the way that, that people go out and the people are outside of their homes, people are looking for entertainment, you know, is completely different. I don't know if the thought of going to a theater and, uh, you know, going out for a drink beforehand or going out for a drink afterward, you know, the, mm -hmm. the way that we do now, you don't go to a you go to a show and go home, right? You go out to a show and, and uh, you have a good time afterward. But that is, certainly has to play some sort of role. And I think that's even true today. Uh, you know, if you think about going out to a show, uh, you think about maybe going out for a drink afterwards. Sure. I, I don't necessarily think about that if I'm going to a movie, right? <laughs> I can go well, to a you movie know, that, that's absolutely it's right. A, it's that's... just a different mindset, and that may have been part of this this change. I, yeah. I don't know for sure, but you know, it, it's what's going on in the world at this point. Yeah. I, I was going to say, Ron, didn't you, are you also suggesting that for, for the theater owners, it was more profitable for them? Yes. Because I'm thinking strictly from the audience point of view, but you're saying... From a theater owner's point of view, it's also more profitable, perhaps, to bring in film rather than produce shows or bring in actors and technical people and all that stuff. Exactly. Here, I don't know <laughs> what I am talking about, but it occurs to me as I think about this, you know, a play, the exciting thing about a play is that it is reborn and recreated every single time it is performed. And so all the, you know, you, there's a lot of subsidiary expenses that come into play, but a film is a is a set thing at most you might bring in and this certainly happened you might bring in the stars of the film to do a you know a live performance Promotion. before or after the show yeah. but that's much cheaper uh, you know in the same way that doing a one person show is a lot cheaper than staging a 40 person thing so i don't have any historical evidence for this but i'm just trying to think in the no, mindset of one of the the presenters of the day some maybe some historical evidence is the fact that the great hero of of Buffalo theater, one of the great heroes of, of Buffalo theater, Michael Shea, spent the entire decade of the twenties building um, you know smaller movie houses in neighborhoods all over the city, South Buffalo, North Buffalo, uh, East right, Side, right. West Side, all in neighborhoods all over the city. This this guy who had you know built these grand palaces for uh, for live theater spent the entire decade 
making sure that we could all go to the movies without having to go downtown to do it. So, right. you know, maybe that, that might be uh, this guy who is smart, this guy who we love, one of the, the godfathers of, of Buffalo theater <laughs> <laughs> started making movie houses during this time. So it might be exactly what you're right, the, right, the proof right. you're, and, and what you're trying to say, Rod. Yeah. And a guy who had started out in the tavern world, you know, right. right. Was, sure. Like, just, you know, was thinking of ways that he could expand his enterprise. And we, I have a feeling we'll be talking about him quite a bit more in a few minutes. The other thing I was going to say about prohibition, though, is that really did a number on, obviously, uh, I mean, uh, more than did a number on it, decimated the, that entire brewing industry in Buffalo that mm -hmm. we were talking about. People had to either, the breweries had to either shut down or try to get by on just making non-alcoholic beverages. Yeah. So, uh, and a lot of, as Steve pointed out earlier, some of the, the, a lot of the money for these larger entertainment complexes came from people who had made their money in brewing. Mm -hmm. and, and speaking of the godfather of American theater, coming up next, uh, <laughs> this one I know I added. You didn't have this in yours, Ron. 1925, the Palace Burlesque with a K. Yes. Burlesque with a K, opened by Dewey Michaels, whose father owned the Allendale. It's the like this Allendale. incestuous, yeah. there's all yeah. <laughs> on Main Street near Shelton Square, and it was eventually torn down. Shelton Square was torn down for Main Place Mall, and then the Palace Burlesque was torn down several years later. I have a note about that in here when they put the, the Church Street extension through. But the first uh, burlesque house opened by Dewey Michaels. And uh, <laughs> Steve, you and I talked about this in a previous interview. I, I just think it's an interesting addition to uh, the Buffalo theater scene because when th they think about burlesque, we're talking about a wide variety of entertainment as opposed to just strippers sure. and pole dancers. Right, right. It was the introduction for most, you know, men and a lot of women too. We think of men going to burlesque, but this wasn't the same thing as going to a, a strip club now. I mean, right. there, there were topless dancers who were barely topless, but there was just as much vaudeville comedy and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, various routines and things, uh, you know. Live music. Right. Long after vaudeville had uh, had been ex extinguished from, from the face of the earth, the only place that was alive were in these sort of uh, vestiges, places like the palace, which, of course, you know, survived into the 70s. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, well, pa well past the time that people were going out to vaudeville, people were still going to vaudeville, right? Long past its sell by date. <laughs> yeah. And they were the same guys, the same, you know, 80 year old musicians and, and comedians. <laughs> and, right. uh, you know, maybe some of the same 80 year old women out on, on stage. If you want a glimpse into what burlesque was like at its greatest, see a production or a, a film version of Gypsy, which really documents that world quite well. It's yes. the second act of Gypsy really dives deep into that form of entertainment, which is, as you're saying, way far removed from, you know, uh, what the Canadian, was it the Canadian, Canadian ballet? ballet. Canadian, ballet. Canadian yeah. ballet, yeah. Funny how we all knew that. It's, uh... <laughs> so Buffalo had examples of the minstrel show, vaudeville, and burlesque, mm -hmm. like just about every town and city in America. And each of those, you know, kind of informed the one that came after it. And we see elements of that throughout culture today. I mean, mm -hmm. there's, if you look at something like Saturday Night Live, that's got elements of all three of those art forms in it. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. Okay, here's the big one. 1926. Shays Buffalo opens under the moniker The Wonder Theater on January 16th as a movie palace and vaudeville hall. The historic crown jewel of Shays Performing Arts Center was the dream of Michael Shay. The theater opened with the film King of Main Street starring Adolphe Monjou, originally serving as a movie house under Paramount Pictures with an acre of seats, which is, by the way, the way they still advertise it. It would later stage vaudeville shows and play host to the likes of the Marx Brothers, Frank Sinatra, George Burns, Bob Hope, and more in the 30s, 1926. And Buffalo Spree just did an article, and I went through it to see if I had missed anything, and of course it has lovely pictures in it. That, that and there's a great timeline. There's a great timeline for it. But if you love timelines as much as the three of us. Then, uh... <laughs> well, I loved seeing the pictures uh, you know, of when they first dug the hole and when they first put up the girders, but it's a beautiful Buffalo Spree spread, if I can advertise for them one, one more time. So I don't know whether this is some kind of turning point or not, because I, I believe, and some of, maybe you guys can correct me, I believe there was almost a competition in terms of 
who's building the more beautiful theater, but Michael Shea certainly establishes himself with this particular theater, and, and we know there were many others under the, as Steve just mentioned, under the, the Shea's banner, the Shea's Seneca Theater, which is also being refurbished right now, and the Shea's North Park, which every time they do another refurbishing there, they discover a beautiful piece of stained glass or something that's been hidden for years. But this was the the winner of the prize for most spectacular. Yeah, it was seen as his flagship operation. I uh, looked into Michael Shea earlier because his, you know, you see his name all over Western New York, and I could swear that he had a sort of national chain, but I don't really think that's true. Uh, Steve, do you know? I think he was mostly in in this area. Yeah, uh, he he connected early with a, a national. And, and I don't with Lowe's. Yeah, Lowe's Lowe's Theater, and became he was a sort of a, a tactile guy. He had to see he had to see it in his hand. He had to be able to walk into you know we know about the Shea Seneca because they're rebuilding the Shea mm-hmm. Seneca now. Mm-hmm. We know about mm-hmm. the Shea's North Park because of, mm-hmm. of course we know about the Shea's Buffalo Theater. But you know all of these theaters, the, the Shea's Kensington Theater, uh, right. the Shea's Elmwood Theater. I mean you know neighborhoods throughout the city. Uh, whether he built the theater or he bought it and sort of made it a Shays theater. Mm-hmm. To be a guy on Seneca Street and to live your Seneca Street existence, but to be able to walk, to go to this amazing movie palace that just looks like nothing else, you know, yes. within miles of your house. That's what he brought to these neighborhoods because I think that's, as a poor kid growing up in Buffalo, that's what he wanted, That that's what he envisioned. Shays Buffalo was the the crowning achievement. And we talked about that, you were talking about earlier, Ron, about the sort of the stratification, people of a lower class and people of a higher class. And Shays Buffalo may have been for the people of a, of a higher class. You know, let's go downtown and see Bing Crosby at Shays Buffalo. Yes. Right, right. But people like my dad, who didn't have, uh, you know, two nickels to rub together, <laughs> could grab his one nickel and go down to uh, Shea Seneca and watch Popeye cartoons and get a couple of candy bars on a, on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon and still have the same uh, same appreciation for Mike Shea. So That's right. That's right. Piggybacking off of something that uh, Steve just said, one of the things that I learned about philo- Michael Shea's philosophy with all of his theaters was because he himself was a kid from the first ward, he really believed in keeping prices low. Hmm. So uh, you could go to Shea's Buffalo, the grand movie palace, and pay just 25 cents for a ticket. So I'm sure that there were probably, um, he must have factored in, maybe the 25 seats were up in the balcony or something. I'm sure he was a, we know he was a shrewd businessman, but he always wanted to, in his theaters, remember the working class and poor people of Buffalo. So another feather in his cap. 1927, and here we are with it, with the Erlanger. Now, this I didn't know. It's built by the Statler Hotels Incorporated in partnership with New York City theater owner A.L. Erlanger as a complement to the Statler Hotel located directly across the street on Delaware Avenue. And connected, by the way, connected by a tunnel underneath uh, Delaware yeah. Avenue. Oh, is yeah, that so, okay? So well, that's an the, interesting. Big, the big stars of the day. So when when Catherine Hepburn shows up in Buffalo, um, she can go. Uh, she didn't have to walk across Delaware Avenue. She could walk underneath. Wow. Uh, her langer was not only was I think I know connected to the hotel for sure, mm-hmm. but I think also connected to the parking ramp, which was uh, you know the, the next block up on the Erlanger wow. side, the that's... Statler. So yeah, very interesting the way that they yeah. uh, uh, were able to uh, to bring all those things together. Uh, the theater sat fifteen hundred patrons. Performers included Basil Rathbone, Catherine Cornell. Well, there's a whole long list here. After you read that, I'll give you what Jim wrote, which repeats some of that, but gives you some really interesting details that I didn't include. So go right ahead. Well, I, I'm going to get to Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. The audience at her first Buffalo performance in the Philadelphia story demanded six curtain calls. They demanded it. Uh, all the Barrymores were here, Paul Robeson, Maurice Evans, Judith Anderson, and Jose Ferrer. Yeah, it was actually Statler that built it, uh, and he leaves it to the person Jim um, Walkowiak, the author of this piece, describes as the ruthless manager, A.L. Erlanger, who had been <laughs> taking over multiple theater projects in different cities, all of them named either the Erlanger or Erlangers. He made his fortune by forming the Theatrical Syndicate, which was the first centralized booking agency that controlled access to almost every theater in the country, hmm. until equally ruthless groups like the Schubert started buying up theaters to break up the syndicate's monopoly. The Buffalo 
Buffalo Erlanger was designed by Warren and Westmore of New York City, the architectural form that had worked on Grand Central Station, and they also built the Hotel Statler, and they built the Biltmore and the Commodore Hotels in New York City. When it opened, it, the, the Erlangers or, and or uh, Statler were, must have been the true showmen because for the grand opening, they had literally golden tickets printed up for the grand opening, and they brought in the biggest theater critics and the biggest performers by train from New York City to attend the opening. So you got wow. tons of national publicity for this space. Unfortunately, people really did, the Buffalonians did not like it. There were all <laughs> kinds of technical problems. The backstage was too small by standards of the day, not unlike Shea's Buffalo until it was able to receive a major upgrade. Right. And then there was a rumor that there was an acoustical dead spot which spread out uh, circularly from the middle of row J. <laughs> so you had to be very careful where you sat. The problem with all of this was it happened in 1927. So two years later, stock market crashes, box office receipts go down during the depression. And then in 1956, the Erlanger completely closed and that began this very dark period. But we'll get to that. Yes, we'll get to that. We, we will. 1927, another 3,000 seat theater, the Great Lakes Theater, which was later renamed the Paramount, which I remember, I can see it in my mind's eye on Main Street, built by William Fox at 612 Main Street. And again, we're two years away from the fall of the stock market. Another thing that happens in 1927 is Showboat opens on Broadway. And this is the moment that the Broadway musical as we know it comes into its first fullest flower. Showboat was the first time that you had a play that was strong as a play and the songs tied together the plot. Yes, gave life to the story. They hmm. could exist on their own. All the technology that theater can provide to t in the service of a story and you have songs that go on to be to form what we now call the Great American Songbook. So so 27 is a really important year in theater history both nationally and locally. This is the, the golden age, which is going to last for about two years, and then <laughs> uh, the whole country is going to go. Everything goes to hell, yeah. Uh, 1927 Studio Theater, some people will certainly recall that name, founded by the venerable Jane Keeler with Lars Potter. Its first location was the corner of Elmwood and Anderson in the space that later became Theater Loft. I thought that was interesting. Jane Keeler later merged the Buffalo Players, which we talked about earlier, into the studio school of the theater, where young hopefuls like Amanda Blake, Nancy Marchand, and Michael Bennett began their brilliant careers, where Studio Arena Theater came from. Yes, exactly. This is the early days of uh, Studio Arena. And if you think about that space, even that entire, even if you include the other parts of that building on Elmwood, it's not a very large space at no. all. And we discovered this much later. So this is another insert just to go along with the changes I made to the timeline that in 1933, believed to be the first bar in operation after Prohibition ends, Ray Flynn's Golden Dollar debuts on Main Street. It becomes a favorite of the Buffalo Courier Express reporters working next door and in the 90s to actors, producers, and other theater workers from all over. Steve will remember it as the hangout from the Courier Express yeah, people and, sure. and all the media people. Yeah. And then, of course, the Courier Express closed down and the actors took over. Uh, and, you know, you had yeah. to be buzzed in and, and only, only recently has it been replaced. And at this point, let's take a little break from the C. Sean Emke Pomisano recording to insert a recording from Tony Chase, who talks about how Ray Flynn's came to be the theater bar in Buffalo and also comments on the concept that perhaps it was one of the first bars open in Buffalo after Prohibition ended. I think that's a lie. I think they were actually open during Prohibition. It began with a theater production, um, Meg Pantera and somebody, was it Seamarks? Two-hander. 
which they, you know, everyone looking for a theater space, they performed at the bar. And they performed it in the afternoon when the regular clientele, which were trico workers in the afternoon, mm. were in the bar. And they got up to the moment where there's a confrontation between the characters and the man grabs the woman. And the clients in the bar watching this, kind of aware that it's a, a play being rehearsed, but when this actor grabbed this actress, this man grabbed this woman, they intervened. Hey, buddy, you know, don't be touching her that way. And Meg's like, no, 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 no I, we need him to do this. We're rehearsing this. This is not real. This is not real. Okay, 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 okay. But like, like, didn't like, we don't like what we're seeing here. It's interesting. But that was the beginning of this becoming a hangout for theater people. And I learned of it when Patricia Donovan, who had been my introduction to the Buffalo News, told me, well, that's where everybody goes. And Javier and I started going there, and that's where everybody went. So it really became the theater bar. So it was everybody from every show would go to Flynn's, and Tommy started to put people's headshots up on the wall. And the jukebox that time forgot and the, the woman's room I gratefully I never saw. I think it was like, you know, like Calcutta in July. It was uh, just horrifying with a little hook that was supposed to close the door but didn't. And, you know, it was time to go to the bathroom. It was time to go home. And they would cash a check for an actor. You could take, you, if you got a check, it's okay if you didn't have a bank account because Flynn's would cash it for you. The most famous bar tab story I know was, was Chris O'Neill who ran up a big tab. Let's say it was $119.45, okay, $119. He came in and he gave Marie 120 and told her to keep the change as a tip. Last call in Buffalo is 3.30 a.m. The bar closes at 4. And then the cry I heard all too many times, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Uh, yes, those kinds of places are so important to the notion of what any city, the life of a city is like, but particularly this this kind of, when we call, when we talk about a theater community, it's a community that involves, right. you know, people interacting in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. This one is more for myself here. I, in 1934, Harry Altman uh, was born in Buffalo, but he's a Williamsville resident. He opens and operates the Glen Casino, which was my home park. Glen Amusement Park, and that's where the Inferno was. That's where the Glen Casino was that then later became the Inferno, which comes up later on. But I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. So where is that related to Glen Falls? The yes. Glen ah. Park Glen Park was maybe, I don't know, maybe Steve knows more about this than I do, but I, I just know that I used to go there as a kid. It was our answer to Crystal Beach. It was a very small amusement park, but, you know, very inexpensive. You could take your family there. Glen Falls was way in the back of it and almost not even, it was an afterthought. You didn't go there for the falls in those days. That huh. entire grounds that you see there now was an amusement park. And as you walked through the gates, immediately on your right was the Glen Casino, like the town casino where many great acts came in, it all started with Harry Altman here, who, uh, and I don't know what his connection was to the Glen Amusement Park, but I do know that he ran the casino there, the, the entertainment venue there. Hmm. And in 1934, Michael Shea dies. God bless him. 1935, Buffalo native Catherine Cornell becomes the first performer to receive the Drama League Award for Romeo and Juliet. You don't suppose she was playing Juliet, do you? <laughs> I mean, the kid's 14. Nope. Uh, she, yeah. there it's either Juliet or she's playing the nurse. There aren't any other female roles in there that are... You know, it was Zeffirelli's movie that was really one of the first times in uh, modern times that people saw someone who was even close to the age of Juliet playing the role. You're right. I'm looking at Catherine Cornell's birth, 1893. So she would have been 35 plus. She would have been 42 years old at this point. Just three times. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Oh, but that's a You use your imagination in theater, my friend. <laughs> Yes, yes. And I'm going to still be playing romantic leads. 1937, Studio Theater moves to the Universalist Church at the corner of Lafayette and Hoyt. Again, connected to the Studio Arena Theater. Mm -hmm. And then what I hope is the final insert here, 1939, the Venerable Tech Theater closes and is mostly demolished a year later. 
the tech was such a big deal that after it closed around 1939 and and a writer in the Courier Express in 1939 now a writer wrote if the tech has ghosts no other theater in the country could have more glamorous ones the greatest names in the English and American theater appeared on its billboards and no history of the American musical comedy could be written without memories of without mementos of the tech it was the place that throughout the uh, mid-century, mid-20th century, Buffalonians would look back on fondly as the real, you know, high of Buffalo theatrical glamour. And then uh, the 1940s, and again, I inserted, this was another one I inserted, uh, Ron. Yes. Louis T. Fisher, later to open Melody Fair, and his wife and business partner, Frank M. Abadi, buy an old barn in Derby and start the Lakeshore Playhouse, a summer stock theater. Let me tell you why I inserted this. It's really down south of Buffalo, but a dear friend of mine who's a great actor, great actress named Dolores Mendolia, she worked for him. He came and saw her in some Lackawanna Players thing, and this guy sort of recruited her, and they went down south, South. They're like 10 minutes from where I am right this minute. And I, I just think it's the interesting connection with Melody Fair that this was his first venue down the street in Derby. Okay. Now, 1945, Harry Altman, again, mm-hmm. late of the Glen Casino, and Henry Harry Wallens open and operate the Town Casino, which is a very important building in the history of Buffalo Theater because UB takes over it. I'm sorry, it becomes Studio Arena first. Then it becomes the Center for Theater Research, and then it becomes Pfeiffer Theater, and then it becomes Sphere Entertainment Center or something. Oh, forgot about that. Yeah. Right. Well, it's the Town Casino, you know, back when the the two Henrys were were running the place. Yes, yes. It was um, so perfectly and heavily promoted within Buffalo. Mm -hmm. While we're talking about great friends, I might as well talk about my great friend, Ed Little, uh, who was a a Buffalo broadcaster for 62 years, you know, started off as a a child actor on the radio, As as a teenager was able to do lead roles because he had a deeper voice <laughs> and continued to do that throughout life. I knew him later as a newsman at WBEN, where we worked together for many years. You know, in the late 40s and early 50s, when Ed came back after being in the Army in World War II, doing play-by-play of bombing runs over Japan on a wireless recorder and sending wow. them back to uh, to the States, wow. uh, which is just amazing, right? Sitting in the belly of a bomber flying over Japan and, and sort of uh, telling what he was talking about. He had a much easier time at the town casino where WEBR would would broadcast live every night. Is that right? He'd play records early in the evening, and that would be part of the entertainment at the town casino. Uh, But part of his show, the big part of his show, which people tuned in to listen to uh, all across Buffalo, was all of the big stars of the day. You were bowled over. I would be bowled over hearing all these these big names that I only knew from watching AMC, American Movie Classics, <laughs> growing up. You know, Rosemary Clooney would be there for a week. You know, not just stop by, which we, we think of today, but these big stars would be there for a week. And Sammy Davis Jr., who was both at the Town Casino and the Glen Casino. But um, all of these big, huge stars of the day, people that you would see in films and hear on network radio shows, would be live in Buffalo. And you'd be able to hear them live from Buffalo and, and be interviewed by Ed Little and, and the folks who followed him live from the, the town casino. Did he broadcast any of the live performances? Not he, but WEBR? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't believe so. I, I think they would do, uh, because they the whole point of these broadcasts were to get people to come down and buy tickets, ah. <laughs> you know, and, and come down and, and be a part. And it wasn't a concert necessarily in the way that we think of now. It was a supper club. You know? Right, it was like a, they, night, a nightclub. It was a, a nightclub, yeah. sure. I have a picture my, of my parents there in one of their town casino folding yeah. little things that they, you know, a guy goes by and says, want to take your picture? And he, sure. you know, for a dollar. If you were a young couple in Buffalo during the 40s or 50s, you got your picture taken <laughs> going to the town casino. That's right. It was the place in Buffalo. It, and the fact that they were broadcasting live every night just gave it that sort of, you were tuning into a, a place that sounded so elegant and so, uh, uh, you know, so fancy, yet you could still, if you could gather up the, you know, five or six dollars in order to get in and bring your date there, yeah. it was, uh, it, it was something special. For sure. I saw one picture, and I don't know if I got it off of your of your blog, uh, Buffalo Stories or not, Steve. And it shows the the marquee out front, and I think it says Julius La Rosa 
Yeah, and there's a line of people get waiting to get in. It it was the hotspot. It was the place to go. And hearing Ed Little on there, you know, doing a show from there, you felt like you were part of you know that excitement. Of, you know, we can't get there, but oh, Julia Slow Rosa is there later on. Right, the biggest star in the world at that point. At if, that you're, point. Uh, if you're if you're in you know if you're an American, the biggest star in the world, Julia Slow Rosa is in downtown Buffalo. I bet that became a, a stop for every quote-unquote biggest star in America. They all came through here. For sure. Okay, 1947, and this is from yours, Ron. A survey says, the survey says, <laughs> survey says there are 63 active theaters in the area. Wow. That has to include every movie and live performance venue, I would think. Right. That's a good question, and I can't tell you anymore uh, <laughs> what the survey was. Or uh, well, it's active theaters, so they're they're doing something. They're doing even either yes, motion and, pictures or. Uh, and there, you know, again, as as we've talked about, there was a a lot of crossover. You might have a place that was primarily intended for movies, but you would have live performances taking place at it occasionally. Mm-hmm. So I don't actually know the answer to that, but the. The key thing is you have this really thriving entertainment community here. I'm just noticing that on the timeline, 1927, we skip ahead seven years to the opening of the Glen Casino. So that includes all of the depression. And it took seven years before Harry Altman and then seven, eight more years before he opens the town casino. But there's a, there's a gap of seven years of theater history there. Be, the, during which the the depression occurs, and probably all building, you know, construction and all speculation. Let's open more entertainment. All that just came to a to a halt. It's also possible that this is incomplete uh, <laughs> research on 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 my part. It's possible, but it seems to me like if anything major had happened. Yeah, yeah. Nineteen fifty one. I'm not sure why I inserted this. I just think that it's important in in the history of Buffalo. Oh yes. Ruben's backstage, and I found a picture of this. I believe on, on your website, Steve. Uh, oh, excuse me, of the stage door. Stage door. I couldn't find a date for it. It operates on the west side of Pearl Street, and I believe it becomes quite a theater hangout. And later on, you know, they even had done some entertaining there as well. But it was formerly the stage door, I think, in the 40s. It later on becomes uh, uh, Desiderio's downtown. It becomes Garvey's, Neil Garvey and his brothers. It, it, it was the stage door originally, but it's had many incarnations. And it's sort of dear to the hearts of many actors and, and so on in, in that area. It became sort of a hangout. Once we get off of Main Street, once we get, you know, we think of all these, these big theaters that were on Main Street, you know, mm-hmm. and we've talked about a couple of them. But once you get off on, the, you know, Franklin and Pearl and you get into some of these smaller venues that honestly, you know, I, I think of the Omega Cafe, which was, that's the official name for it, but it was Drew Murphy's. That's what everybody called it for, for years and years. That's what everybody called it. Yeah. And I, I was there once. These are places that I know anything about because people from this community, actors, actresses, they, they, yes. hey, you know what? We hung out at this place. Place. When I was a teenager, this is an actual conversation that somebody, can you tell me anything about Jew Murphy's? I know I went there when I was a young kid. <laughs> I've only found one picture of that. And again, it probably was on Buffalo Stories. And it's just down the street. You're looking down the street from the corner of Chippewa and Franklin. Right. And it's, I believe now it was turned into the Augsburger. It's a, it's a parking ramp. Par- yeah. Parking ramp. When you walk away from Shays or you walk away from uh, the Erlanger, and you, you know, take a walk down Chippewa. Where were you going out for a drink after the theater? You know, mm-hmm. you had a full selection, you know, oh. within walking distance between yes. Shays and the Erlanger, you had every kind of place imaginable to enjoy yourself after the theater. And that's <laughs> part of what made Buffalo special and made a place that people wanted to come to Buffalo to yeah. enjoy because you could go to a, a high class, really elegant place or you could go to the lowest of the lowest class places. <laughs> right next you know, door. Within a block or two, right, <laughs> within a block or two of one another. Yeah. During this time that we're talking about, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, it was a really special experience that just isn't around anymore. 1956, Here, here's Louis Fisher. Lou Fisher and Frank Abadi now open Melody Fair under a round tent in North Tonawanda, where they bring in a lot of the same... I remember seeing Robert Goulet there, but they also did full theater. Yep. You know, you, you'd go there and see Showboat. 
But mostly it was nightclub entertainers, and then later on it became rock and roll uh, people. Melody Fair was an important place, uh, even though it was way the heck out in North Tonawanda. Yeah. 1956, the Erlanger closes. And this is a direct quote from you, Ron, leaving Buffalo without a professional theater for the first time since, uh, well, whenever. That's kind of significant. Well, let's see. Since well, now you have to define what you, 1821, when a place was no, called the theater. Right. Or 1814, when the Thalian Society. Right. Well, I think it would be more the, the former of those. It has to be the pro theater, the professional theater. Yes. So 1822, 21, 22. Right. So 130, 134 years, 135 years. But just thinking about being without a professional theater, wow, that's uh, that's really saying something. And do you suppose it was just because of the talkies? I mean, was it just because of the movies? There were other economic factors, and uh, Jim Wachowiak has a little reflection on that. He ends his article with his final paragraph, and this he's writing here about the Tekken and the Erlanger. Although there are plenty of reasons why the Tech and the Erlanger experienced only a few decades of profitable roadshow business, the most significant reason of all could be that in 1927, the end of the Tech's money-making years and the start of the Erlanger's run, the movie started talking. How ironic that Al Jolson, who created a smash on the tech stage and ushered in the roadshow business in Buffalo, would rise to become the world's greatest entertainer <laughs> and the star of the jazz singer, jazz the very singer. first talkie and perhaps the watershed moment when movies began to replace the theater as our premier popular entertainment. So actually, yes, he is saying that that's basically... What are the dates when the actual talkies, when did the jazz singer come out? 27, I oh, believe. it was 27. 27, So, yeah. Wow. That's 30 years. Of but I know the Erlanger was not a, it wasn't like all of a sudden they just shuttered the place. No. It was years and years of begging, of pleading, of saying, hey, if you guys don't come out, we're going to shut this place down. Oh, really? And people saying, oh, no, please, look, we'll do what we have to do. I think of kind of like um, Studio Arena, what might be more familiar to our audience, Studio Arena and the drive to keep the bills in Buffalo yeah. 20 years ago. I think people thought, Everybody wanted to be the hero, and everybody was going to buy the last uh, luxury box, right? And all of a sudden, yeah. once they hit the, the number, they almost doubled it. Uh, that didn't happen with the Erlanger. Promoters ended up taking a, quite a bath on a couple of shows where there was something like you know 600 or 700 patrons in that huge theater yeah. that was printed in the Courier Express the next day. You know, We were there for the, the second show. And there were 600 people in the seats. So it was a long time coming. This wasn't just something like, you know, all of a sudden it was a big surprise. Uh, there were people who were sad by it, clearly, but not enough people who were willing to show up and, you know, continue this theater. So was Buffalo still growing? When did we start moving backwards? We're talking 1956 here. And of course, things are cyclical and people get tired of live theater yeah. and then they want to do the talkies. And then all of a sudden we start back up in the 70s and 80s with, with live theater again, and it becomes sure. a big theater town. But I'm just wondering, was Buffalo still a thriving and growing metropolis in the 50s? The telltale signs were there. Mm -hmm. That uh, that things were starting to you know not go or with the opening of the St Lawrence Seaway I think 1957 thereabouts the late 50s so we're we're about that time Bethlehem Steel was the largest steel plant in the world and now it was you know by the 50s it was uh, 40 years old and there were so many stories like that yeah because by the 60s they were it was on its way out yeah. I'm not exactly sure it, it seems to be something that happened in every. Uh, medium-sized city all around the country. And I, and I think the, the the loss of theater is something that not only happened in Buffalo, um, but happened in a, in a lot of these places. It's it's just interesting to think about that it didn't just happen here. We're looking at Buffalo, but it's something that sort of repeated itself in cities that were like Buffalo, once huge, thriving uh, metropolises and sort of, you know, shrinking down as a uh, you know, as people began moving to Florida and California. It's interesting that we're, and, and shrewd of you, I think, to end this episode on a kind of a cliffhanger, like will theater in <laughs> Buffalo survive? Because, you know, uh, Steve's story of the Erlanger is 
sort of foreshadowing what will happen in wh- whatever the next episode is, uh, what's going to happen to Shays because uh, Shays Buffalo, because at a certain point, there was no guarantee that that was going to survive. It could have easily gone the way of the Erlanger. I feel the need to point out, I can't believe it just, <laughs> I mean, the thing that we're talking about that happened in the 50s, uh, there was plenty of live theater in Buffalo. Unfortunately, it was coming into everybody's living room in a tiny little box. Of course. Television was filled with live theater in a way that it isn't now. Right. right. The Clue was was an amazing Channel 4 produced uh, television show. Uh, It was the first drama produced on local television, eventually became syndicated in a way that isn't familiar to us now, but it was aired around the country in different places. Uh, You could watch a 15-minute, a half-hour drama in your living room in a way that you couldn't before. So we had theater, but theater was adapting, and actors began working on television instead of, you know, in live theater. Of course, that makes perfect sense. And the same way that we're talking about how are we going to monetize and figure out how theater is going to go forward from here, the way we are now, uh, with actors acting on Zoom. Well, I think it was kind of the same thing that was happening with actors in, in the live legitimate theater yeah. in the 50s as well. So as you say, to be continued. Uh, Steve was talking about the threat that television played to live theater. Well, it played the exact same threat to motion pictures. Mm. That's why the tech spent its final years as a Cinerama theater, because that's the era when presenters are trying every gimmick in the book, 3D, large screen sizes. You know, there were all kinds of gimmicks, buzzers under seats, (laughs) things like that, because all these movie theaters that we had were also in jeopardy. So yeah, it's a real turning point. Why don't you hold on to that thought a second, because I'm going to jump in and do the 1958 and then we're going to go back to the Erlanger again for 1959 uh, for an interesting tidbit. But in 1958, the African Cultural Center, which is now the African American Cultural Center, the African Cultural Center is founded by Malcolm Ernie, Ernie, to help young people get involved in arts and crafts, African dance and music and storytelling. This would grow into a theater program during the black arts movements of the 60s, intended to nurture and showcase the talents of African-American playwrights, producers, directors, actors, and stage technicians, and it would later then be dubbed the Paul Robeson Theater many years later on a timeline that you will not have to suffer through. (laughs) You guys will be long gone by then. But just to talk about it at this moment that even this part of the community needs the outlet for expression of their culture. Yeah. The expression of their culture. Thank you. Yeah, sure. And that's, you know, an important turning point for that group in Buffalo. And that's pretty early nationally, I would say, because we don't really start thinking of black theater as a, as a strong force until the mid sixties. Right. With a revolutionary black theater that, and I, and I have, I've interviewed two gentlemen from this time period, Celeste Tisdale and Ed Smith, who were both strongly involved in the African-American Cultural Center. And then both of them claim that they were the ones responsible for renaming it the Paul Robeson Theater. Um, mm. But it's it's interesting that this happens at this time. Well, the other thing is you see commercial theater declining but this is also the period when experimental theater mm-hmm. in New York, in Europe, and even in Buffalo, it starts to rise. Um, so it's kind of like uh, the, the, econo- the, the old economics has collapsed, and but that opens up spaces for uh, all kinds of new things that are alternatives to the Broadway model. Yes, yes. And community theater, and another equally important force. It's sort of like as larger things collapse, smaller things can grow in their uh, in their wake, I guess mm-hmm. you could say, mm-hmm. these metaphors there. Well, then we get back to 1959, one year later, when Darwin Martin, Darwin R. Martin, son of Darwin D. Martin, of the famed house on... Uh, Jewett Parkway. Parkside and Jewett, yes, thank you. Darwin Martin Jr. purchases the Erlanger and guts the theater's interior for a conversion into commercial office space, what we were talking about. And then in 2007, as Steve already mentioned, it was demolished to make room for the federal courthouse. And that's sort of like the end of an era, as it is the end of our timeline. A dire end. But things will get better in the next episode. (laughs) 
Stay tuned. Tune in next time for another adventure with, well, gentlemen, I wanted to give, we're going to call this an end, but I still want to give you a chance, Ron, to talk about for people who want to get further information in places they can look. But I want to thank both of you for an incredibly enlightening and, and delightful conversation. This exceeded all my expectations. And thank God for you, because this just could have gone right down the toilet. And, uh, <laughs> and, it, and it did, but in a, in a delightful right. way. I'm glad you think that it didn't, because <laughs> yes. the listeners will decide ultimately, won't they? Well, yeah. yes, they will. And, I, and I, I now have four and a half hours worth of information, and I'm going to cut it down to 20 minutes. So a lot of there this will are. be gone. And, there uh, you are. But I cannot thank you enough, Steve Seashan and Ron Emke. Look for Ron's things, his writings everywhere. Where? Give me a plug, Ron. Where, where do we see most of your stuff now? <laughs> On Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you're still writing for you. you write for the Spree. Yeah, I'm, still, I'm writing here and there. Um, I'm not doing as much for Spree right now, but I've actually got some top secret writing projects of my Ooh. own. Sure. Yes, very hush hush. I don't want to commit to anything yet, but yeah, hopefully there will be uh, a lot of stuff coming out in. Uh, Bold new forms. How's that sound? <laughs> that sounds but, good. Yeah, I really got some exciting stuff coming that I. Good for you. Now I know what it's like to uh, say, but I'm not at liberty to talk about it. All right, all right, <laughs> but but I will blame you for helping me start this whole thing with your timeline from 2010, uh, which for some God only knows what reason was. I bookmarked and said, this might come in handy someday. There you go. And Steve Seashan, <laughs> aside from you molding young men's minds in a good way. That's right. Well, and, and you have random articles that come out in the Buffalo news and I know you have a new book coming out. Yeah. Once a week in the, in the Buffalo news, you can look for uh, some hopefully interesting part of Buffalo's pop culture history. You've mentioned buffalostories.com a, a bunch. Thank you sure. for that. But I, it's, it's there for people to enjoy. It's not really a plug for me. It, it's an it's an incredible resource. Once I went down, that's why you're here, because once I went down the rabbit hole with Ron's oh. article, then I started looking at other things. And every time I researched something or Googled it or Bing.com, I was taken to a source and I thought, what is this? And it ended up that many times it was Buffalo Stories, your blog, which is filled with incredible pictures and stories. And uh, and you have a book coming out, do you not? There's a you know four or five, twelve books. I don't know. They're all on the, they're all on my website. But the one the, the most recent one was uh, the first half of the 100 years of uh, Buffalo broadcasting. Buffalo so broadcasting. the first 50 years of, of Buffalo broadcasting, yeah. uh, which includes so many of the things that we're talking about here. So. Um, that's great. There you go. If people want to want to do more deep diving into this subject on their own, I was thinking of some places to look, and this is, of course, an incomplete list mm-hmm. of Buffalo stories being one of the sites. But a lot of what we've drawn from, you can search the Buffalo Spree website. Donna Hoke has been doing theater writing for years there. Darwin McPherson before her, Tony Chase throughout. And I believe Tony, as I've said before, was one of the, or was the guest editor of this September 2010 issue of Spree. Large amounts of it are available online. The Grosvenor Room at the Downtown Library is just, I mean, I would live there if I could. The the primary sure. materials you can find there are just unparalleled. And I spent many, many days there putting this and other timelines together for Spree. You owe it to yourself if you're interested in, in pretty much any subject about Buffalo's past to check out what they've got. As far as the, the downtown library in the Grown Room in, in particular, uh, one of the things that emboldened me <laughs> in calling my first book The Complete History of Parkside was that I did go in that room and look through the title of every book in the stacks with, with the imagination of, could there be something about this neighborhood that I haven't uncovered yet. We've uncovered things here, just talking together about the history of theater. There were a number of a, a number of stories that I was able to to put together and to you know sort of sew two disparate parts of history together just by literally walking through the stacks and looking at the titles of books and going, hey, there might be something in here that can tie things together. <laughs> um, and and it, I mean that's not a that's not a one weekend process. It's a years and years and years process. But it is a fun thing to do uh, if it's the sort of thing that you're interested in for sure. People may like to think, oh, everything's on the web, but it's no. 
to really do a deep dive into what life was like in Buffalo or any other city for that matter, nothing can replace looking through things like magazines, even restaurant menus, the advertisements for what you know, who was coming to town. If you really want to get the picture of any place, and especially this place, that's the place to go to find out more. The National Comedy Center in Jamestown is, if you haven't been there yet, is a must. It is just this state-of-the-art facility, and they basically look at comedy as an art form from, uh, geez, I would say um, Aristophanes to Trevor Noah. I'll, there, there's a <laughs> there's a there's a wide range. <laughs> there's point, an up-to-date but, reference. Yes. Yeah, they've got a lot of stuff about live performance in addition to other forms of comedy, and you just owe it to yourself to check them out. The Birchfield Penny has wonderful resources. You may think of them primarily as a visual art museum, but their mission is to look at the artists of uh, connected to Western New York from the inception of the village to today. Hmm. And so they, there's an archive there that contains just plain old manila folders full of stuff that you will never ever find on uh, online anywhere so that's well worth checking out hall walls has great archives online for the birchfield has has really good archives as well but they uh, online but the, if you really want to see stuff you won't find anywhere else you can go right there hall walls's archive there are video documents of all sorts of live performers from what would be later episodes of this podcast and I think most of those are, uh, some of them may be at Hallwells, a lot of them are housed in the Poetry and Rare Books room at Lockwood Library at UB. And that's another great resource, the poetry room there. I have based many a project on stuff I've seen there. And then there's another great website, Buffalo as an Architectural Museum. Yes, you, that, this was one of the ones, well, you sent me all of yeah. these at one time. That one is just fascinating no offense to the uh to Chusa who put it together it's it's not a bells and whistles website but no, boy no. is that packed with information about just about every building you can think of, of of significance and many buildings that are simply uh generic architecture some there are landmarks and then there are just day-to-day -day buildings mm -hmm. and the easy there's a long uh wacky url for that but if you uh, do a search for buffalo as an architectural museum you'll find the site. So, and again, as both of you have talked about, just finding people, particularly older people, and getting them, bringing a tape recorder, the one on your phone will do, and getting them to tell their stories is really valuable because it particularly matters in a community like Buffalo that does not have the sort of cool cachet of a place like New York City or Chicago. In And by cool cachet, I mean, the there are hundreds of books about every neighborhood in, in New York, L.A., Chicago. Buffalo needs to tell its own story, and we can tell that story more accurately and refer to my earlier observation that someone like me who isn't from here can't tell the story as accurately as someone who is from here. So tell your own stories and get the stories of people that you know. I'm leaving out the Historical Society, another absolutely great, uh, and I'm, they're now called... The Buffalo History Museum. Yeah. There are a lot of archives out there and these are really important resources, and it and it's incumbent on all of us to tell these stories now, so that other people, sort of as a tribute to these people who came before us, exactly the contributions that they made to this community. If you believe in Buffalo as a as a special place, and I certainly do, I just did the math and realized I've uh, lived here for 39 years, and I thought I would go to UB for four years and then you know <laughs> go off in search of a tenure track job and I fell in love with Buffalo. If you love Buffalo, find out more about its past and share that with the people of the future. Thank you very much. On that note, I think I will say goodbye to both of you. I don't know how to thank you. I'll, I'll figure out a way to beer. thank you, but there beer. will be. <laughs> beer is always a good one. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. Uh, I'll keep in touch and, uh, yes, you know, send me too. anything else that sure. comes to your head. Yes. Send it to my email address. For sure. I appreciate it. So long, guys. Thank you. Thank sir. you.
Yes, I know they were brilliant, but they're gone now, and you're just going to have to put up with just me. Oh, hi, it's Pete Pomisano again. I hope you were as fascinated by that conversation as I was. Steve Cishan, Ron Emke, two very smart men, clearly smarter than I am, and they were great to converse with, and I thank them once again for their contributions. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, and that's when we start what I have dubbed the modern era of Buffalo Theater. And that's when you will hear the voices of those who were there, those who created, those who founded, those who were instrumental in making Buffalo the theater community that we now all enjoy. And it all starts in 1962 when Leon Seidel buys Shays Buffalo, another monumental event in the history of Buffalo Theater. We'll be back in two weeks. I hope you enjoyed it right here on RLTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. Pomisano.